0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Check Down Charlie's Football Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric, and as always, I'm joined by the host with the most, Theo. What is going on, Theo?
1: What is going on? Um, Nothing much, as per usual, except uh, this time it's part two of uh, us recording in person. The live series. The live series, exactly. Absolutely. rizzoli has been back for over the Christmas break. He's been here for what, like three weeks?
0: Yeah, coming up on it. I mean, I'm, I'm heading home tomorrow, so had to get one more recording in, of course, before, before I go back across the Atlantic. So always, uh, always happy to do it in person. You know, like yeah. Zoom uh, has a particular quality, but I mean, we've been over it. But always better to do it in person.
1: Much better, and things move smoother. You know, I don't have to think as much. I get sort of nervous on Zoom, Mm. if that makes sense, because I am like stalling. I'm trying to think because we're we're essentially speaking to a larger, larger audience, but we're Mm -hmm. also speaking to each other. Yeah. So it's like you have to compartmentalize both. Both things, right? Like talking one on one versus talking to the audience. Right. And it's so much easier when you're in person Mm -hmm. because that part is more natural. Whereas like on Zoom, it's like I'm talking to you, but I'm almost talking to someone else.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think also like seeing yourself on camera can be a little bit like disorienting in a way because then you're very conscious of the way that you look as well as the way that you sound. Just doing it in person is way more casual in terms of just a regular conversation between us, right? Yeah, I fucking hate looking at myself. <laughs> oh, man. Based on where we were, last time the episode that we'll cover today is the rest of the 1970s when we last left you off the Dolphins dynasty had just been derailed by the Oakland Raiders in the famous sea of hands game Uh, Larry Zonka Paul Warfield and Jim Kick had made their way to the WFL uh, in search of more money and exposure to a different league And the Dolphins were kind of struggling to find their identity at that point.
1: Yeah, the wheels were sort of falling off, metaphorically speaking. Mm -hmm. And their best years were behind them. They're sort of metamorphosizing into a new version in the late 70s.
0: Yeah, I mean, the core group is still there, right? Like, Shula is still there, but they're having to find a way to win without their greatest superstars, right? And and we'll see that it is a, a transitionary time for the team um, although they keep some of that same backbone some of that same spine of the team the
1: 1975 season represented a changing of the guard for the miami dolphins gone were zonka kick and warfield on offense and bill Arnsparger on defense miami needed an influx of talent to keep up with its division rivals george young was hired as director of pro personnel and pro scouting to help the dolphins acquire the players they needed along with shula and bobby bathard the trio got to work
0: just to add one thing on George Young, some of you will recognize the name. This is more or less what springboarded George Young into his job as the eventual general manager of the New York Giants. And George Young is the man credited with drafting Lawrence Taylor, but he got his start uh, in the Dolphins front office.
1: And I did not realize Bobby Bethard had ties to the Dolphins organization. Mm-hmm. So Bobby Beathard, famous for helping build the Washington... Well, not dynasties, but dominance throughout the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Selections from 1974, like defensive tackle Randy Crowder, who happens to be the father of future Dolphins linebacker Channing Crowder, and Don Reese started to come into their own. Sixth-round linebacker Steve Toll led the team with 164 tackles on the season, and Freddie Solomon was added in the second round to give Miami a dynamic special teams weapon.
0: Don Nottingham and Norm Bulach combined at fullback to fill in for the departed Zonka. Mercury Morris led the backfield, with help from the injury-plagued Benny Malone. Nat Moore built on a stellar rookie campaign to become the Dolphins' leading receiver, and Jim Mandich developed into a reliable red zone target for Bob Greasy. No matter who was carrying the ball, the Dolphins' formula for success in 1975 was similar to what it was prior. Run the ball until they stop you. The Dolphins had several 200-yard rushing games in the season, and Don Nottingham finished 1975 with 12 touchdowns. Bob Greasy was allowed to air it out much more, and had one of his best games against the Bears, passing for almost 300 yards and three touchdowns. The no-name defense stepped up despite injuries to
1: Manny Fernandez and Mike Cullen. Stanville and Den Herder anchored the defensive line, with new starters Crowder and Reese blossoming. All in all, the defense still allowed the fewest passing touchdowns in the nfl that season the defense's crowning achievement was a 43 to nothing blowout of joe Namath and the jets the dolphins forced eight turnovers including six interceptions from broadway joe the 75 dolphins overcame a shaky start to rattle off seven straight victories in the middle of the season in week 10 lightning struck twice as bob greasy was injured against the rival colts and replaced by the ageless wonder earl moral despite losing to the colts he led them to victory in new england the following week before suffering ligament damage to his knee shula
0: said quote the old man got out of his rocking chair and did an outstanding job with Morrill and greasy both sidelined the job of commanding the offense fell to second-year pro don strock he filled in admirably leading miami to victory against the bills to set up another crucial encounter with the baltimore colts in the second last week of the season it was clear that this was a must-win game for both teams, as the loser would be unlikely to make the playoffs. It took until the third quarter before Mercury Morris broke the deadlock to make it 7 to nothing. The Colts responded by tying it up at 7 in the fourth quarter, as the game was a defensive struggle. In overtime, Colts quarterback Burt Jones was given the opportunity to win the game. NFL narrator John Facenda hit us with this beauty, quote, as the Chesapeake Bay fog rolled in, the figures on the field took on the guise of ghostly apparitions, and Burt Jones needed 96 yards to realize his impossible dream, end quote.
1: Doesn't Facenda just encapsulate the moments perfectly on film?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It really contributes to the whole narrative of it, you know, like having descriptions like that, you know, it's almost like you're watching a movie, right?
1: Yeah, he was the original, like, marketing tool mm-hmm. for a whole generation yeah. in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Those uh, NFL films, season recaps and films and highlights are a goldmine for people like us because, you know, you get to look back on the season and, and understand it from a whole new perspective. And John Facenda's narration definitely helps with all of that.
1: He's the precursor to all of this, right? Mm-hmm. All of this NFL media doesn't really exist without NFL films.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's Ed Sable, right? It's the Sable family that really is instrumental in founding NFL films and what essentially becomes the media arm of the NFL outside of the TV broadcasts, right? Burt Jones was able to lead his team to victory as they hit a field goal to equal the Dolphins' record of 9-4. and four. The Dolphins had one last chance to seize a division title. Despite Earl Morrill coming in for Strock, leading them to a come-from-behind 14-13 victory, the Colts won their matchup and were headed for the playoffs. The Dolphins had maintained their record of at least 10 wins in every season that Shula had coached. The Dolphins also still had the best record in the NFL since the merger in 1970. However, they were on the outside looking in. Of all the members of the 1970s Dolphins that we've covered so far, the most enigmatic figure seems to be Safety Jake Scott. Throughout the course of our research, Scott's name seemed to come up only very seldomly, with the most important note in his career being that he was Super Bowl VII MVP. Scott's talent was clear, but why was this clearly gifted individual so rarely mentioned alongside his teammates? The answer lies in what we can gather from his interactions off the gridiron, particularly with Don Shula.
1: Jake Scott was another diamond in the rough brought to the team by Joe Thomas. Scott had previously played in the CFL with the BC Lions before being drafted in the seventh round by the Dolphins in 1970. According to Undefeated, when Joe Thomas drafted Jake Scott in the seventh round from the CFL, he bragged to the media that they were able to get a first round talent for seventh round money. Thomas convinced Scott to take a $10,000 $10,000 pay cut to
0: play in Miami. Mercury Morris describes Jake Scott's role on the team as such. Quote, Jake, on the other hand, was a holler guy, a good old country boy who came to the team from the University of Georgia via the Canadian Football League. He added spunk and savvy to the defensive backfield, and a lot of fun to the teams off the field comings and goings. There was also the redneck club. These were the good old beer drinkers. Jake Scott was the leader of this group.
1: Not in the uh, mold of the beer drinker, but it reminds me a lot of Cam Wake. Because Cameron Wake in 2000, I'd say seven or eight, mm-hmm. he was actually an undrafted free agent who had a role playing job with the New York Giants mm-hmm. and then ended up making his way to Canada and played for the BC Alliance. And that's where he got recognized and then signed a big deal with Miami. Right. So this is like that. I don't know, like 30 years prior.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, early precursor to that. And you know, sometimes the talent can slip through the cracks, or maybe sometimes it takes players longer to develop. Leagues like the CFL and WFL, that kind of thing, XFL for a modern day equivalent uh, are really helpful for the players that might not have caught someone's eye if they didn't get a second look. Makes me wonder why, and we'll probably
1: get into this more with later podcast episodes we'll definitely do the research but it always makes me wonder why there isn't some sort of like g league like there is in the nba where there's like a developmental league that's partly sponsored by the nfl like these teams are worth multi billions of dollars and it seems like they can never just there's never enough talent Hmm. but there is like it's just the you know the assessment of that talent is always is wrong and like at times it's just Imperfect timing as well, because some of these players like Cam Wake just need to sort of toilet out in an inferior league to just get some playing experience before they're actually qualified Mm -hmm. or like, you know, good enough to play in the
0: NFL. You could certainly make the argument that the college and university programs work as a developmental, quote unquote, league for the NFL. But I think there was also the experiment that the NFL had in the mid to late 2000s which With was NFL Europe which was NFL Europe right that i think whether it was ill-fated or whether it came before its time because now you're seeing games being played in London being played in Munich so obviously the interest is there i would love to see NFL Europe make a comeback or even have a team say in London or Munich just so that you know more prospects have a chance of of making it to the NFL It is interesting to think that, like you said, the NBA has the G League, and there's definitely the hunger to play football, so I think it would be really advantageous for the NFL to invest more in developmental leagues.
1: Jake Scott's talent was undeniable. However, to say that Scott was not a fit for Shula's disciplinary style would be an understatement. According to Dick Anderson, quote, Coach Shula would yell at some players, like me. He'd talk calmly with others. He'd joke with some, like Song. Jake Scott? Jake, he'd leave alone. According to Mercury Morris, Jake Scott was on a skiing trip during the preseason one year. When he was told to report to the team, he sent a telegram to Shula that read, Snowed it in!
0: You think he was telling the truth or
1: not? Maybe a different kind of snow and he was just (laughs) hanging out in South Beach? Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? It's probably just indicating what was up his nostrils. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. As players were getting on the bus to go to the Super Bowl against Washington, Don Shula spotted Scott still outside the bus, handing tickets to his friends and chatting. According to Undefeated, the interaction went down like this. Shula says, You're going to be late for the biggest game of your career. Scott said, What's the matter? You thinking about going down as the losingest coach in Super Bowl history? Scott's toughness was never an issue. After having both hands broken in one season,
1: He's quoted as saying, Now I find out who my real friends are when I go to the bathroom. During the lead-up to the Super Bowl game against Washington in 1972, Scott had been dealing with a serious shoulder injury and a broken hand. Jimmy the Greek Snyder even moved the line after hearing about the severity of the injuries, but Scott had other ideas. According to Mike Freeman, The only way he missed the game was if his heart stopped pumping blood. As all of you know by now, Scott had interception, and won MVP honors in the game
0: with a broken hand and an injured shoulder. As it turns out, it would be Scott's mouth that would get him in trouble. During a game in 1974, he would call defensive coordinator Vince Costello a fucking moron. When Shula turned around to ask what was happening, Scott shot back quote, I wasn't fucking talking to you.
1: <laughs> also going back to that, uh, me alluding to him doing coke, I have no It's not confirmed (laughs) that he's ever taken the substance. I was just, it's it's conjecture.
0: Yes, (laughs) absolute conjecture. There's no proof of that. There's no proof that, you know, Jake Scott indulged in any of that. But But there's also no proof that he did not. Exactly. So (laughs) we'll leave that one up to you guys. While the WFL were busy courting the likes of Warfield, Kick, and Zonka, Scott used this to his advantage off the field. He began to brag to Robbie and the higher ups that he was fielding offers from the same league. Dolphins brass panicked and uncharacteristically gave Jake Scott a six hundred thousand dollar contract over five years, making him the first defensive back ever to make six figures in the NFL. That's such trash money, but like, I guess like, it's slightly
1: over a hundred thousand dollars a year.
0: Yeah, I mean, think about it. One
1: hundred twenty k a
0: year. Zonka, before he goes to the WFL, says he's making about fifty thousand a year salary. So this is more than double Larry Zonka's annual salary.
1: But that's interesting that he's the first defensive back to even make over six figures. Which before the emergence of Deion Sanders in the '90s, mm-hmm. the defensive backs were significantly underpaid. And like if you compare that to today's game. Defensive backs get paid like at a premium. Whenever they hit free agency, they're always going to command a high salary.
0: Yeah. You could argue that playing cornerback and safety are the most athletically demanding positions on the football field because as a corner, you're covering receivers. You're covering the fastest and most agile players on the field and having to adjust to their movements, you know, which is not easy.
1: They aren't just receivers who couldn't catch, by the way.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Contrary to popular belief, right? According to Dave Hyde of the South Florida Sentinel, Scott refused to attend a mandatory team banquet in 1975. He chose to go to the dog track instead. He was fined $500, but claims to have won $700 at the track soon after. In 1976, Scott refused to play in any exhibition games, citing the same injured shoulder that nearly kept him from his MVP performance in 1972. Shula clearly didn't think that this was too much of an issue, and insisted that Scott take pain-killing injections to play in the game, like the rest of his teammates. When Scott refused, Shula fined the safety $5,000. Scott went on to speak to the Miami News regarding the incident. Quote, I've got about 10 players as witnesses. Shula can intimidate 5 or 6 of them, but... I know two or three that he can't intimidate, end quote. Scott then immediately requested a trade from Miami.
1: The two men exchanged words, and a day later, Jake Scott was traded to Washington. There were also rumors that Shula said, fuck you, to him at a 10th anniversary function in 1982. But Shula denies this ever happening. I'd like to think that that actually happened, because as we'll get into it later on, Shula and even Joe Robbie almost get into it, like, fighting yeah at a banquet mm-hmm. he uh tends to get lost in the sauce i bet
0: i think that it's more like dominant personalities it seems cheesy to say like alpha males butting heads but at the same time like if you're a coach you're used to being in charge and you're used to people listening to what you have to say and like taking what you say as gospel so having somebody that's strong and hard-headed like butting against you can't really be easy to like take that in stride you know Mm -hmm.
1: so as usual larry zonka does a good job something things up every player from our team misses jake jake was great he did that all the time he always played hard and played at a high level when you hear people talk about the great safeties in league history his name is rarely brought up but the other guy in that game was manny at the very least manny and jake should have been co-mvps
0: Say what you will about Jake Scott, but his presence on the Dolphins was certainly felt. He made five Pro Bowls from 1971 to 1975. He is still the Dolphins' all-time leader with 35 interceptions. He recovered two fumbles against the Vikings in 1973 in the Super Bowl. Scott passed away in 2020, age 75. Whether or not his attitude always meshed with Shula, we can without a doubt say that Jake Scott was and always will be a Dolphin legend. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlies podcast.
1: Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean.
0: Don't forget to follow us at Charlie's on Twitter and at CheckdownCharlies on Instagram.
1: Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review.
0: Until next time, thanks for tuning in.